Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners. Today, we're going to be sharing a fantastic Wonder Media Network show that we think Gravity fans will love. It's called As She Rises, and it brings together storytelling and poems from artists throughout the U.S. and the U.S. territories that depict the effects of climate change on their home and their people. Each episode carries you to a new place through a collection of voices, local recordings, and soundscapes. Stories span from the Alaskan tundra to the receding coastlines of Puerto Rico, centering Native voices and women of color and personalizing the magnitude of climate change. If you love this episode as much as we do, you can listen to As She Rises wherever you get your podcasts. The story survived upstream of me. This. The river bloated, turned outward on itself. A breakthrough wide, a more natural state. Forget the walls, the artificial banks setting a thin route south into the gulf. River found its mouth lacking made itself big to accommodate the surge. Water by volume, water by the ton for miles, fills its container, won't be kept out. I grew up at the base of the Salish Sea in Olympia, Washington. Instead of running around lawns or bicycling on sidewalks, I spent my childhood roaming the tidal flats. Recently when I was home, I was standing out in the water with my dad, looking down at the sand dollars at my feet, and he said, You know, Grace, I haven't seen a starfish here in years. It almost sounded like a line from a cheesy horror film, a la... She's been dead for a thousand years, or something like that. But unfortunately, climate change and its far-reaching tentacles are far from fiction. Even in my relatively short lifetime, I've seen climate change transform my home. From the changing ecosystem on the tidal flats to severe weather patterns, We all heard about the crushing heat wave that swept across the Pacific Northwest this summer, 
It's estimated that nearly a billion small sea creatures were killed on the beaches, scorched under the heat dome. The summer prior, you couldn't even see across the bay due to smoke from nearby wildfires. And the winter storms are longer and wetter than ever before. In a state known for rain, this past January was the third wettest month on record. My parents' home faces directly into the weather. The winter winds and diagonal rain swell right up to their windows. After another long winter, my parents called to tell me that they were selling my childhood home. Tired of fighting with Mother Nature, they're moving on and relocating. The idea that anyone is immune to climate change is laughable. But if you're at all like me, you might not have chosen to look all that closely. Whenever climate change comes up in conversation, I immediately get overwhelmed. Between the doomsday scenarios and all the numbers and statistics being pushed on you, it's no wonder some of us aren't prioritizing this issue in the way that we should, myself included. So I figured I'd try and take a different approach to the conversation. I thought about what could help build pathways to empathy. For me, that's stories of people who are fighting to preserve their home, just trying to save their corner of the planet. I might not know how to act in the face of global warming, but I can advocate to protect the boundary waters in Minnesota. Through poetry, I can begin to empathize with those looking at an unrecognizable Alaska. I can raise awareness of the reforestation efforts in Puerto Rico. And in doing so, perhaps I can find a little bit of hope. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. We're going to try and personalize the elusive magnitude of climate change. This series will explore the vast United States through the experiences of local climate activists and poets. Today, we're in New Orleans, Louisiana. The poet you heard from at the top of the show is Jerrica Martian, reading from her collection, Swole. I wanted to talk to Jerrica because while her poetry speaks to her experience in Hurricane Katrina, it also touches on broader themes, like how these climate events shape our concept of time. I came to New Orleans in 2001 with my two parents. We're immigrants from the Philippines. Hurricane Katrina and its aftermaths were very, very personal. I write poetry that's close to my body. And being in New Orleans, the borders, borders are so fragile here. Everything here seeps into the next thing. Thinking about climate change is a part of being in a town like this. You feel it in the summertime, where every summer feels like the hottest summer on record. It's hard not to think about your body at all times in this city. You just feel everything. In terms of Hurricane Katrina, it's how we tell time. People say before the storm and after the storm. Before the storm, things were like this, or my home was like this, or I had 
this many pairs of shoes, talking about the things that, that they had and then the things that they lost. Not so much in terms of loss, but in terms of the people we were before Katrina. I remember whistling. The wind had gotten so violent that it was shuddering through my house, and I could hear it whistling through the cracks in the house, and it was the eeriest sound. There had been a lot of pine trees, like young pine trees, in my parents' backyard, and I could hear them snapping. Is similar to the sound of regular pencils snapping, except a thousand times larger, and your home and your body is so close to those falling trees. I hear the voice of Garland Robinette. Stay with us. We're your lighthouse, gang, in this moment of darkness. When we had lost power, his radio show was the only radio show on and I remember people calling into his radio show trying to piece out what was going on when you were in the storm or you were in the city we had no clue what was happening I do think about leaving New Orleans as an exercise but it's just an exercise never been serious about it. I'm fully committed to staying here for as long as it'll let me stay here. I love how Jerrica phrases that, for as long as it'll let me stay here. Because more and more, it's not up to us. Half of New Orleans sits at or below sea level. Since the 1930s, Louisiana has lost more than 2,000 square miles. Enough land that if that happened in Rhode Island, we'd be the 49 United States. But you don't need to zoom out 90 years to see a dramatic change. Roughly every 90 minutes, the state loses an entire football field of wetlands. Just this summer, on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Ida made landfall in New Orleans. Those that could evacuated the city. One of the most powerful hurricanes to ever hit the United States, Ida ravaged Louisiana's power grid, leaving over a million people without power. Even without an Ida or Katrina-level storm, New Orleans experiences devastating floods each year. There's a gate that's released that allows the Mississippi River to overflow into Lake Pontchartrain. It's called the Bonnie Carey Spillway. It's only supposed to be open in the case of emergencies. In its 90-year history, the gate's only been opened 15 times. But five of those were in the last five years. Each time it's opened, the amount of water that flows out each second is hard to comprehend. I think maybe the best way to picture it is like a 10-foot-deep pool the length of a football field. 
that's just about right. Another way I found it described was about 25,000 bathtubs of water per second. And when major storms do happen, it can mean permanent dislocation. After Katrina, people didn't come back. Arguably the hardest hit region of the city was the Lower Ninth Ward. Only a third of its residents returned. I want to introduce you to someone who did come back to Louisiana, Colette Pichon Battle. She's a climate justice advocate, founder and executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. She was living outside of her home state when Katrina hit. In the aftermath, she came back to help. She's been there ever since. My name is Colette Pichon Battle. I'm the executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. We're a public interest law firm and justice center. I'm a human rights and climate justice lawyer, and I call home Bayou Liberty, also known as Slidell, Louisiana, just north of New Orleans. The climate change conversation and the way that science and statistics really frame it is good, but inadequate. And it did not describe what I was experiencing, the door that I walked through in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. When I looked at climate disaster recovery, what I saw was racial discrimination. When I looked at federal and state and local policies that force people to choose between their livelihood and moving to another place that discriminate and, and brought lawsuits for years, I understood climate change not through science, but through the discriminatory practices that will necessarily occur in our current systems as we have more and more climate impacts. The frontline people want to know what's going to happen the next storm comes. Not are you going to stop the water, but are we going to be able to rebuild? Are we going to be able to come back? Who's going to try to take our land? Who's going to be erased? Who's going to be allowed to die? I have friends who are scientists and we have conversations about how even scientific data is racialized, how even technology is racialized. And if we don't fix the race component, we'll never get to solutions that allow my community to survive. In 2005, the population of New Orleans was about 67% Black. The neighborhood I mentioned earlier, the Lower Ninth Ward, was 98% Black when Katrina hit. The area was overwhelmingly Black because of redlining, which restricted the city's Black population to this area because the land itself was a higher flood risk. The government furthered this cycle of inequality when federal relief for homeowners came after the storm. Payouts were based on a home's original value, not the cost to rebuild the home. So even though the Lower Ninth Ward was flooded at more devastating levels than other areas of the city, its residents received less aid, simply because their homes were originally of lesser value. So I come to this from a legal standpoint, I come to this from a human rights standpoint, I come to this as a Black woman from South Louisiana, and I see that it is one of many doors to walk in, but it's as valid as the science. It wasn't until the BP oil drilling disaster five years later, five years after Katrina, that I actually connected the dots to climate change. At first, I was just responding to a big hurricane. That's all it was. 
But after BP, you start asking questions of what is the line? What is the narrative here? How is this BP oil drilling disaster connected to Katrina? Ah, it's this extractive industry that is accelerating these storms. The consequence of deep water drilling is the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And it was at that point that I understood what happened to my community is connected to an industry that has fueled the coffers of my state for a long time. We have to recreate a new system that will allow for my state to be prosperous and my community to survive. And this was the climate justice entrance for me. The climate justice movement acknowledges that the adverse effects of climate change are not equally felt. Racial and economic inequality are wrapped up in every contour of the disparate social, economic, and public health impacts of climate change. So while even my own middle-class white family is grappling with climate change, I cannot for a second pretend that the impact that has on our lives is even close to what much of Colette's community continues to endure every day. Throughout this series, we're going to be talking to and listening to the communities most affected, the indigenous, black, and brown folks who are the people leading this movement. And for each community, there's something different at stake. One thing Colette's worried about losing is Louisiana's ancestral knowledge. What people don't understand about Louisiana, the Gulf in general, but Louisiana in particular, is that prior to Hurricane Katrina, Louisiana had one of the most stagnant populations in the U.S. Um, it had the lowest number of people who left the state and a low number of people who actually came into the state. And many people come to South Louisiana or, or any part of the state and they they talk about the tradition and the culture, um, but those things were allowed to live and grow because the population was so stable. We did not have an economy that brought in lots of workers. We also had um, deep family and communal structures that kept people close to each other. So, you know, moving away was moving an hour away <laughs> or two hours away. And so when you think about that intact community in a city that is older than the United States, you have to understand that you've got deep culture and deep tradition that is now being threatened by rising seas. If you haven't been down here for Mardi Gras, make your way down here to New Orleans, one of the greatest times in the month. You can see all the festivities. The people that really keeps New Orleans alive, the Mardi Gras Indians, the brass band, the people of New Orleans. So we're gonna take you uptown, downtown. We go to New Orleans, y'all. One, two, three. I come from a community that has been where it is since the 1770s. Uh, and all of a sudden, Hurricane Katrina really forced people to understand temporary displacement, but even long-term displacement. There was the physical impact of the storm. You know, your house is messed up, your cars are messed up. Uh, but there was a cultural impact with so many people leaving to so many different places. And one thing in particular that stands out was, you know, we go to my community, um, our elders, for lots of things. Um, how do you grow this vegetable? What do you do to, for this rash? What do you do for this sickness? Deep knowledge that we know our old people have. And after Katrina, it was really hard because if they survived, many of them had to go away to where their children were. And the cultural knowledge that sat in the community wasn't there. It wasn't there to access. That made recovery harder. 
I also see with the loss of our knowledge, the loss of our people, um, there's an influx of new people. And people have to now relate to neighbors differently, right? Your neighbors are no longer these folks you've known for generations. They're people with funny accents from the Northeast and West Coast. That's what I like to say about those folks. They talk about our accents, but we really think the New York accent is way more interesting than the Louisiana accent. But now how do you relate to neighbors? Your neighbors are not, they don't have generational knowledge. Uh, they don't have... Maybe good intentions, but um, not a knowledge of the landscape, what plants to grow, what animals to kill, uh, what you leave uh, so that things stay balanced. I mean, there's a whole new group of people to teach while all of your information has been displaced. Physically, the houses are now built 10, 12 feet in the air. It sounds strange, it looks strange, but the, sh but the weirdest part of it all is you can't just walk to your neighbor's porch anymore. It used to be three steps down your step, three steps over and three steps up their step. Now it's 22 steps down, three steps over, 22 steps up just to see your neighbor. And if you're 60 and 70 years old, that's, a, that's not easy. Uh, so even how we neighbor has changed just in our adaptation to what has come and what we know is still coming. In Louisiana, it's not just ancestral knowledge of the land or neighboring practices that are at risk. In the most extreme instances, cultures are at risk of dying out altogether. Colette told me about an island 50 miles off the coast of New Orleans called the Ile de Jean Charles. It's home to the Biloxi Chitimacha Choctaw people. They've existed as a self-sufficient society for centuries but the island has shrunk from 35 square miles to half a square mile over the last 70 years. And when I looked into why the island had shrunk so dramatically, I wasn't all that shocked to find that it wasn't due to natural causes. Offshore drilling practices increase the salinity of the water, which kills off reeds and marshes that protect the land. Plans are underway for the remaining members of the tribe to formally relocate, a plan that was expedited when Hurricane Zeta struck the island in October of 2020. And more recently, Hurricane Ida has effectively destroyed what little habitable land remained on the island. I'm shocked at how many Americans don't know what's happening in the Gulf South with the climate crisis. You know, there are these moments when people do learn about how much land we're losing or how devastating the storms are when they have that moment and they look me in the face and I see the the terror in their eyes uh, because what they have thought of as a problem for those countries over there, uh, for those people far away, for those cultures that we don't know, understand or value turns out to be in our backyard, in a place like New Orleans, in a city that we love. To watch folks contemplate the United States losing this coast and losing these cultures is, um, you know, it's a sad, sobering, but real moment. I watch people come now and ask, you know, um, where can we volunteer when we come down from Mardi Gras? Where can we be of service uh, when we come down for vacation? How can we do eco tours instead of just participating in consumption and pollution? You know, how do we help preserve 
what the Native Americans um, are doing on the coast. If we want to know how to survive, what is coming? We're going to have to talk to the survivors. And I'm excited that those survivors are Native American, African American. There's an acknowledgement that has to come in order for us to survive. And it is that the strongest, most knowledgeable people are the ones that our capitalist society values the least. But if we're going to survive this climate crisis, we're going to have to value them the most. One way you can advance Colette's work is by joining the efforts of the Gulf South for a Green New Deal. It's a regional formation of more than 225 organizations that are all advancing issues of climate, racial, and economic justice in the five states across the Gulf South. That's Texas, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. If you're not in one of those states, they also have a list of national organizations that are contributing to the effort. This year, the Gulf South for a Green New Deal kicked off their regional actions to build local infrastructure and power around issues of land, labor, energy, economy, and water. We'll include the links to these regional actions and the organizations involved in our episode notes. As I ended my time with Colette, I asked if there was anything else she wanted to make sure I took away from our conversation. Here's what she said. I don't want to leave this without mentioning that for the last 15 years since Katrina, it has been women on the front lines of everything. And inevitably, when there's a movie or a video or a ability to speak to Congress, there's a man that has been given the talking points that have been cultivated by a lot of women who are working really hard down here in disaster recovery, in rebuilding. It is the women that are doing the work here. And I want to honor that we are invisibilized. And sometimes because we don't work within structures that people recognize, we are silenced. But this community has been able to recover because of the work of women in this region, in particular, women of color and Native American women. And if there's any inclination to pray or support or send good vibes, think about the women here who are on the front lines of the greatest battle we'll, we'll see in our time. In January, Representative Barbara Lee from California's 13th District introduced H.R. 260, the Women and Climate Change Act of 2021. If enacted, it'll create an interdepartmental agency that will help U.S. climate policy address the disproportionate weight women carry. Included in the bill is a conclusion from the United Nations. It reads... No enduring solution to society's most threatening social, economic, and political problems can be found without the full participation and the full empowerment of the world's women. Over the course of this series, we're taking Colette's advice and listening to the voices of women and non-binary folks from communities on the front lines of climate change. 
If you want to support the work Colette is doing, you can donate to or volunteer with the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy at gcclp.org. You can explore Louisiana through Jerrica's book of poetry, Swole, which you can find at futurepoem.com. All these links are included in our episode notes. As this show progresses, we're counting down to COP26, which is perhaps the most important climate change meeting in history. This November, world leaders are meeting in Glasgow to review commitments made in the 2015 Paris Agreement to reduce emissions. And it's one of the last chances world leaders have to take radical action and slow climate change. That's where you come in. Check on the show notes for opportunities to urge world leaders to protect our planet and the people on it. As She Rises is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. It's produced by myself and Liz Smith, with editorial support from Emily Rudder, Ale Tejeda, and Carmen Bocacarillo. Until next time. <laughs>